0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jason Stanley, Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. And author of the book How Fascism Works, who considers what's at stake in the House Select Committee's investigation of the January 6 pro-Trump insurrection and the ongoing threat to U.S. democracy. Eric LeCompte, executive director of the Jubilee USA Network, who discusses the urgent work he and others are doing to close the dangerous global COVID vaccine access gap. And Andy hens, a former employee of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, who talks about his turn to climate activism and his recent arrest in an action to shut down the Mountain Valley Frac Gas Pipeline. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Palestinian families in a decades-long eviction dispute with Jewish settlers in East Jerusalem rejected a compromise plan floated by the Israeli Supreme Court. A delay in the court ruling in the spring fueled mass protests in Jerusalem and helped spark 11 days of violent conflict between Israel and Hamas. The court proposed what they called a practical solution where 70 Palestinians could remain in their homes as tenants with protected status from evictions as long as they made regular payments to a Jewish settler's organization. The suggested compromise didn't settle the question over ownership of the buildings, which was granted to Palestinian families by Jordan after the 1948 war. Jewish settlers filed claims on the properties during the early 1970s. The Guardian reports that both Palestinian families and the organization representing the settlers rejected the court compromise. Rights groups say families in East Jerusalem are also vulnerable to eviction orders, estimating that more than 1,000 Palestinians in total are at risk of losing their homes in similar court battles. The eviction dispute in the Sheikh Jarrah section of East Jerusalem touches volatile issues, including control of the city of Jerusalem, the rights of Palestinians in the occupied territories, and Palestinians' right of return. Mexico has filed a civil lawsuit against 10 US-based firearm manufacturers in federal court in Boston. It's a major escalation of Mexico's claim that gunmakers' marketing of military-style weapons is increasing drug cartel-related violence. The suit alleges that U.S. gunmakers, including Smith and Wesson, design, market, and sell guns in a manner they know appeals to drug traffickers, including a special edition 38 caliber pistol engraved with the face of the Mexican revolutionary hero Emiliano Zapata. This is the first time a foreign government has sued U.S. gunmakers in American courts. After the repeal of the assault weapons ban in 2004, gun manufacturers were given broad immunity from lawsuits by victims of gun violence. But recent lawsuits by U.S. victims of mass shootings, including the families of those killed in the Sandy Hook School Massacre, have begun to chip away at gun makers' immunity while challenging their aggressive marketing practices. Over the last decade, there has been a rising level of drug-related violence in Mexico, with 36,000 people killed in 2018 and the murder of dozens of Mexican journalists. Former Clinton Administration Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has been one of the most vocal critics of President Biden's pandemic stimulus package and proposed infrastructure spending, insisting these government expenditures would increase inflation. Summers, an Obama administration economic advisor who now sits on the boards of startup financial technology companies, has blasted the Biden agenda as, quote, the least responsible macroeconomic policy we've had in 40 years. However, the American prospect notes that most economists have signaled that the recent increase in inflation is temporary, impacted by supply chain problems and recovery from lockdown low pricing. In fact, inflation growth has already begun to slow down, suggesting that Summers' concerns were overblown. For years, Summers has supported the notion that what's good for Goldman Sachs is what's good for America, an institution that just so happens to have rewarded him with lucrative speaking fees. Not coincidentally, Summers sits on or has sat on the boards of subprime lenders like Lending Club. Square and the buy-now-pay-later firm Afterpay, which touts itself as interest-free but gouges customers with late fees. All of these outfits hope to cash in on the desperation of working Americans shut out of more fair credit lines and in desperate need of small amounts of cash. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: The House of Representatives Select Committee, formed to investigate President Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the deadly January 6 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, is now weighing whether to pursue essential evidence contained in call logs from the Trump White House on the day of the riot, which could be subject to executive privilege. A growing body of evidence points to Mr. Trump's direct involvement in multiple attempts to stage a coup in his attempt to remain in power despite losing the November 2020 election. According to notes taken by former Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen's deputy, Richard Donahue, during a December 27th phone call between Trump, Rosen, and Donahue, the former president said, Just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and Republican allies in Congress. The state of Georgia is also currently investigating Trump's recorded call, with Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Rafsenberger, where the president sought to overturn Joe Biden's victory there, saying to Rafsenberger, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Orwaski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here, Professor Stanley considers what's at stake in the House Select Committee's investigation of the January 6th pro-Trump insurrection and the ongoing threat to U.S. democracy.
2: Well, I think that it's extremely clear that there was a a coup attempt. It was almost successful. And the Republican Party is now a fully anti-democratic party uh, that is seeking one-party rule. uh, And they're they're lauding countries like Hungary that have achieved that. Uh, and they're, they're looking carefully at what failed in the coup attempt. And they're systematically passing laws that will ensure that those failures won't happen again. So we can expect in 2024 uh, it will be successful. And if it's Donald Trump or another one of these would-be autocrats who Wishes to take his place, uh, that they will uh, they will rule with impunity, and the United States will uh, degrade uh, as it's already degrading uh, in its democratic status. The probe, uh, for anyone who's been watching, it was quite clear that this was a coup attempt. What we've seen, what the probe has unveiled, is that at the very center of power, Trump was trying to convince. Uh, Justice Department officials, state officials to push the narrative, uh, uh, the fit false narrative that there was significant voter fraud or suspicion. Uh, And the entire time, uh, one of the many things that should worry us is, first of all, the levels which people denied what was happening before their eyes. And now that it's all being laid out in public, people don't care because you know, I, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why, why so many people denied that it was happening when it was happening. Uh, and I don't know why people don't care as much as they should uh, that this happened in the United States. But all of this sends a loud and clear message to would-be autocrats, including Trump himself, uh, that no one really cares. I think one thing that's happening is a level of cynicism about politics. Uh, that has been spread in some cases, ju- to some extent justified, of course. But democracy is always a creaky business that is always going to involve corruption, especially when campaign finance laws have been so degraded as they are in the United States. So you can always represent the system as broken. And so people don't care because they say, look, it's all just a crooked rigged system anyway. So it's a very grim sign that you, that it's hard to rally people – behind the last vestiges of American democracy.
0: I think looking back at the George W. Bush administration, the torture that took place, the war of aggression that was launched against Iraq under the pretense of lies that came out of the White House, and what we saw unfold under the Trump administration, we have obvious impunity for the law. And I think there's a lot of cynicism out there about the rule of law in this country. The law is supposed to apply to all of us no matter how rich or powerful. But it seems our rule of law here has degraded quite a bit.
2: If people think that a game is rigged, then they will think that the person who's openly cheating is authentic. The problem is, you know, we had multiple previous governments not bringing to account, you know, the financiers who destroyed our economy, the uh, defense industry industry. And foreign policy hawks that, that are complicit in or agents in mass murder and war crimes and torture. And then everyone thinks, okay, the whole system is broken. So why care about a coup? And that's what we face. You know, we can point fingers at the Bush administration, and we can and should point fingers at the Bush administration. We can and should point fingers at uh, President Obama's administration. Uh, for not doing as much as they could, for sucking up to the to the tech titans, and tech oligarchs, and to tilt us in the direction of oligarchy. But none of that should make us so cynical as to turn our eyes from uh, an almost successful coup attempt. And right now, one of our major parties turning explicitly against democracy. So I think the question is, how do we combat this anti-democratic party? How do we encourage Republicans, people who I disagree with politically, but are committed to democracy? How do we encourage them uh, and encourage people like what's happening in the opposition to Orban right now in uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, where you have people across a wide ideological range who are sick of the kleptocracy and the corruption. And even though they have massive political disagreements, they all agree Victor Orban should be defeated, and some semblance of democracy should be returned to Hungary. I think we need something like that. Uh, we need some kind of agreement across ideologies to preserve a vague semblance of democracy before it's too late.
0: That was Jason Stanley, Yale University professor of philosophy and author of the book How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Find more analysis and commentary on the threat to democracy posed by former President Trump and the Republican Party by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Despite the fact that the United States has a surplus of COVID vaccines, the nation is witnessing a surge in infections from the Delta variant of the coronavirus. With an estimated 100 million eligible Americans hesitant or refusing to be vaccinated, Cases and hospitalizations have reached a six-month high. During the first week in August, COVID cases have averaged 100,000 for three days in a row, up 35%. Louisiana, Florida, and Arkansas reported the most new cases in the same time period, with hospitalizations rising 40% and deaths, a lagging indicator, increasing by 18%. In much of the rest of the world, Particularly developing nations, however, coronavirus infections are soaring due to the lack of vaccines, the same vaccines that are plentiful in the U.S. According to the United Nations, poor countries receive less than 1% of COVID vaccine doses, as the World Trade Organization is considering temporarily waiving pharmaceutical patents so developing countries can produce and distribute their own COVID vaccines, tests, and treatments. Science tells us that without fully vaccinating the people of the world, we'll continue to see the creation of new, more dangerous mutations of the coronavirus. Your reporter spoke with Eric LeComte, executive director of the Jubilee USA Network, who discusses the work he's doing in collaboration with religious leaders from around the world to waive drug company patents and raise the funds necessary to close the extremely dangerous global COVID vaccine access gap. So according to the
3: United Nations, um, 82% of all vaccines have gone to wealthy countries. uh, And we break that down, 75% of all uh, vaccine doses right now have gone to the 10 wealthiest countries in the world, where um, low-income countries, uh, poor countries have received only around 1% of vaccines. It's an incredibly serious problem, um, and it has lots of causes, but for us in the United States, uh, it's an incredible concern, as terrible as the Delta virus uh, is running rampant across parts of the United States. uh, The situation in the developing world is even more dire, uh, and there's not access to vaccines to stem what they are experiencing Uh, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, a third or fourth wave of the pandemic. So we need, uh, in order to just vaccinate, uh, this idea of herd immunity, which is, you know, it's taking on different meanings as time goes on, but to vaccinate 70% of the world's population, we need 11 billion vaccine doses, Uh, and we're not even close to there yet. And if we don't get those vaccine doses ordered and sent before the end of the year, uh, it has two really big impacts for us in the United States. Number one, uh, if we don't get that global delivery, uh, it means the vaccine won't be able to stop continual and more mutations uh, from the virus, meaning that new uh, viruses that could be much worse than Delta Plus or the Delta variant will come back to the United States. And number two, the International Monetary Fund, the most powerful agency on global economic forecasting akin to the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund predicts if we don't get global vaccination done by the end of the year, the global economy is going to lose $9 trillion. So it's incredibly significant. And most of that $9 trillion loss will be felt by wealthy countries Um, that include the United States.
0: Eric, where is the world right now in terms of raising the funds needed to get the vaccines to everyone who has to get one, in addition to waiving the patent rights? But as I understand it, it's not just the patents, but also releasing the proprietary technology to produce these vaccines, which is one step beyond the patents themselves.
3: That's right. And, And I think taking those questions in perhaps reverse order Waiving the intellectual property on the vaccine uh, recipe, so to speak, that's a first step um, and that's going to help. But uh, it doesn't go far enough in terms of all of the access to proprietary knowledge that more of a startup pharmaceutical company would need. Uh, So that is an issue. This is something that can certainly help uh, and get access to more vaccines. Um, There's going to need to be additional decisions that are made by the World Trade Organization. Uh, And also, it's clear that the work we're doing now, not only to help this current crisis, which I think will be a health and economic crisis for several years to come that we're going to be facing as a global community, uh, but also to start to put in place structures to prevent the next crisis. Now, in terms of how much money we need to raise to also be able to get vaccines out there, that's another really big piece. So uh, there's been the COVAX initiative uh, and then also the initiative that the IMF and other financial institutions have launched uh, to raise $50 billion to support global vaccination efforts. Um, Right now, it's at about $37 billion but it's been very slow to get up to that point where it needs to be uh, to deliver a significant amount of vaccines. Uh, But in terms of when we look at that big number of 11 billion doses needing to be delivered to vaccinate 70% of the world's population, we realize that, you know, we don't even have anything in place to get us halfway there. If we're looking at the United Nations numbers that, Uh, In terms of what's been delivered around the world right now, only 15.5% of the entire world's population has been vaccinated. So we are uh, really in a desperate place to get the financing in place, the aid in place, uh, as well as changing global trade policy uh, in order to facilitate global uh, vaccine distribution. Uh, And if we don't do it, uh, it means uh, all over the world uh, and here in the United States Uh, we're going to continue to deal with a prolonged health crisis and a prolonged economic
0: crisis. That was Eric LeCompte, Executive Director of the Jubilee USA Network. Learn more about the urgent campaign to close the global COVID vaccine access gap by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On August 9th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released its first full report in eight years, and the news is dire. Not only is the planet heating up dangerously, but the pace is accelerating. Climate-fueled disasters are occurring more and more frequently. The report lays out four scenarios for what we might expect by 2100, based on what kind of action the world takes or doesn't take. On the same day the IPCC report was released, 95 water protectors and land defenders walked onto a construction site of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia. The group had driven three hours in the middle of the night from their training camp in West Virginia. While the frackgas gas pipeline, that runs for 303 miles from northern West Virginia to southern Virginia, is mostly built, it still lacks government permits, for many of the stream crossings it needs to complete construction. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Andy Hins, one of ten people who locked down on the site and were arrested. He and seven others were charged with two misdemeanors, while two other activists were charged with felonies for no known reason. Hins worked 25 years for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, the agency that approves almost all interstate pipeline permits, before he became a climate activist. Here Hintz discusses the Virginia action, his view of the climate crisis, and what he hopes will motivate others to become active on the issue.
4: So it was it was a work site in Virginia where they were laying pipe. That particular junction was a stream crossing in Virginia. And it was actually fairly close to the Yellowfinch tree sets. And I was locked down in, there were two wooden structures, a yellow tree finch, and I was locked down in the middle of that. So that was very cool. And then uh, Candy, Darter, the two endangered species that, that you know people are concerned about. And then five people were locked down to equipment. Uh, so, um, yeah, everybody walked onto the site at about, I don't know, 7 in the morning or so after our three-hour drive. People held the space with us for a while until a large police contingent, you know, got there after a little while. So they walked back out and then were like along the highway, which was near the, the construction site, and were continuing to uh, chant and sing and stuff. But it was cool because we could hear them the whole time doing all the chants and everything. And they were on a highway, so I think they got up a lot of exposure.
1: Andy Hins, why did you participate in this action?
4: Oh, uh, so many reasons. The fracked gas is not needed locally, um, so it's something that we don't even need. It's destructive to stream beds and, you know, mountain slopes, and uh, it's just, you know, very environmentally destructive in and of itself. I mean, if it were just a pipeline not even carrying fracked gas, it would be destructive. You know, it's going to pose a a risk because, uh, you know, based on the way they did some of the slopes, And, you know, it's going to be high risk of, you know, some kind of catastrophic failure if it ever gets completed. So then, of course, you add on top of that the climate risk. In addition to the local environmental damage, the amount of greenhouse gases that it's going to release is just just not acceptable. It's a huge pipeline. It's massive. You know, as we heard yesterday in IPCC report, I mean, it's crazy for us to be doing it. And then on top of that, the local community... The ones that are informed about its risks don't want it, as well as, you know, many, many landowners don't want it. So there's really, you know, broad support against the against the pipeline. And, you know, now you have the mountain Valley pipeline doing <laughs> uh, carbon offsets to try and, you know, put some kind of greenwash on the project. And it's just ridiculous. And. You know, the EPA itself says it shouldn't be built, you know, because of the the stream crossings and and the impacts, which haven't been even reasonably studied.
1: I happen to know that you have been making good trouble in several places around the country and have three court cases outstanding for this kind of nonviolent direct action. What motivates you to that level of commitment?
4: I think the situation is that bad. I think we all need to, whatever we're doing, you know, ratchet it up a notch and do more. We're really facing um, the loss of so much life on this planet. And even as we speak right now in this moment, you know, what we have done is killing uh, life on the planet right now as we speak in this very second. Um, And all we can do now is lessen the amount of death and destruction that we've already created. One of the people that I was locked down with was a retired Air Force officer who lives in Richmond. You know, when you got an ex-Fort person and an ex-Air Force person, um, you know they're locked down to equipment in Virginia. That just hopefully is a motivator. And it was the, it was his first time um, being arrested or doing you know an action like this. And it wasn't easy for him because I was with him, and you know I saw him processing and going through it. And people like this person from Richmond who it was a first time for. We need more people like that. I mean, we need everybody. We need the people who simply don't have the money and time to take action like we did to take some action, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's, you know, signing a petition or a letter or donating or supporting people or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, he also talked about it was a first time for him and he felt like it was important that he be there because he had you know, the means and the privilege to be there. And many, many, many people who would like to have been there and who feel as strongly and as passionate and, you know, as motivated as both of us who were there, but just simply can't be there.
0: That was Andy Hins, a climate activist who was arrested for participating in an action that shut down construction on the Mountain Valley frack gas pipeline on August 9th. Learn more about groups working to stop construction on the Mountain Valley pipeline and other fossil fuel projects by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on RECFM in Riverton, Maryland, KGHI in Westport, Washington, the Progressive Voices Network, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.